Welcome to the I Love Splatter podcast, episode two. We are very excited to be back, and today we are going to be talking about The Slumber Party Massacre, a 1982 American slasher film directed by Amy Holden Jones and written by Rita Mae Brown. And then we're also going to talk about the sequel, Slumber Party Massacre 2. Just say that again. Uh, it's a 1987 uh, sequel to the original, and it was written and directed by Deborah Brock, and it is kind of insane. Um, so we're going to start out with the first one, uh, which for some reason I did not see these films in the 80s even though I grew up in the 80s a teenager in the 80s I think it's because they came out just a little bit before I was really allowed to see horror films and also like later on when these things were in the video store I probably looked at the cover and thought there is no way I will be able to bring this video home uh, and have my mother approve of me watching it. <laughs> so I actually did not see the Slumber Party Massacre film until about four years ago when my boyfriend bought me the soundtrack on vinyl, which is fabulous. And then after he bought it for me and we listened to it, I realized, you know what? I've never seen this movie. And so I watched it having uh, not having known much about it at all. I knew it was written and directed by women. Um, I knew that it was supposed to be a parody of the slasher genre, but I didn't really uh, grok that when I was watching it. I didn't really click in for me. This time when I watched it, it really clicked in for me, and I saw all the little pieces of, let's just say it's smashing the patriarchy. Uh, fuck the patriarchy. I saw all these little pieces of things that I hadn't noticed before in terms of uh, the killer and the women that really were apparent, really just were fascinating to me to learn this time. The basketball team is planning a party. A slumber party to bear their souls. All the girls are coming, except Mary and Linda. And they won't be missed. The party begins at 8 o'clock. It's a slumber party for old time's sake. Love it too. Do you think I'm getting better? But be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early, but others will hang around and hang around. You're underage. Negative. Oh. I'm not going to eat that dead guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. But for those who stay, there'll be plenty of surprises. <laughs> and non-stop action. Sure, no one's getting any sleep the night of 
the Slumber Party Massacre. Close your eyes for a second and sleep forever. So, uh, Heather, when did you see first see this movie? I'm curious. Like you, I didn't see it when I was, like when it first came out in 82, because I was just too young to see it. And I don't think I saw it until the early 90s, which is when I first saw it. And it was basically the moment I realized that Rita Mae Brown, who wrote Ruby Fruit Jungle, which is lesbian canon, had written a horror film. And I was like, wait, 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 what? And then I sought it out at a uh, video store, a VHS, you know. And I saw it and I immediately was like, holy crap, I freaking love this movie. And I do still love this movie many watches later. And I feel like I, like, like you, I feel like I see something new or I understand something differently each time. So. Yeah, it's real. it was a really fascinating rewatch. Um, Adrian, when did you first see this movie? This is going to start to sound repetitive, but I, I can promise you that we in my part of Cincinnati, Ohio, in my couple video stores, did not, there was no copy of this movie because I had it memorized by, mm -hmm. you know, the time I was like 14, 15. Not like you said, not that I think I could have gotten away with taking it home, um, just based on the cover alone. I think I would have gotten sent back um, or just would have disappeared if I brought it home um, back to the video store. But so I didn't see it again until I was in my 20s, the first one. And then I didn't see two until last year, the I think, when it like started getting played a lot in heavy rotation on Shudder's streaming mm -hmm, mm -hmm. section. And so now I've seen it like 20 times because I'm like just fascinated by it. But we're not <laughs> on that one yet. Um, so yeah, I didn't see it until my 20s and I had the same reaction. It was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. And it snuck up on me because um, when I first saw it, I didn't know anything about who directed it or who wrote it. So at first, before you really like are paying close attention, you, it, it didn't strike me as parody right away, but I knew it wasn't like, I knew it wasn't just straight up serious. So it was yeah. a really fascinating dive in. And then, you know, I learned more about it and figured out, you know, what was actually going on and it was genius. But I remember that beginning being like, what is, like, what is this? Why is it like this? I guess it's worth saying, too, that when this film came out and when uh, in the 80s, like there was no Internet. There was no really way to look up things like this. And so either maybe you stumbled upon a, a magazine that there happened to be something about this in, which I highly doubt, or, you know, you just saw it on the video store shelf. And I'm sure when I saw it on the video store shelf, I also had no idea it was directed and written by women. I probably just thought it was like, oh, well, that's another one of those dumb slashers about women getting killed by a man. And why do I need to see that? You know, mm -hmm. and so like this isn't this knowledge about who wrote it, who directed it. It wasn't easily accessible to us when we were growing up. It was just like you had to sort of make a judgment about what movie you were going to watch based almost entirely on the video store cover or by some kind of knowledge that was handed down to you by a fellow film lover or you know like scare like scarecrow video didn't even exist when this when this came out so like i wouldn't have known to like go in and talk to somebody about it you know um right and yeah. i 
I had never looked at, at who directed it or wrote a movie back when I was like a teen. That was not something. I bet if any if any of the three of us did that, it would have been Heather for sure. I bet, but I know I didn't like yeah. think to look on the back or to investigate that when I was picking up tapes. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're right to an extent. Like, I think I probably only looked at certain movies that way, you know, mm-hmm. like um, because I saw Blue Velvet, and so. I like sure. became obsessed with learning about Dune and like, but yeah, I just, I think you're right. It's, it's not something you're just like in it for the movie or in it for the experience, you know, and you want to talk about it with your friends. But like, did I know who directed Friday the 13th when I was? No, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know. No. Yeah. I think I did pay more attention, but that's just because, it. yeah, it, well, it's, it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about visibility, and it just matters in the sense that I became obsessed with film, knowing that film was my medium as a really young kid, and I constantly was looking for my place in it, and how I could fit in, and how I could see myself, because I wasn't often, if ever, seeing myself properly represented on the screen, so I was like, well, I'll find myself somehow behind the scenes in the creation of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and having a slasher film written by a pretty well-known feminist lesbian and then yeah. directed by a woman was just so, I, I just don't, I, I mean, I think this is the only horror franchise exclusively written and directed by women. Yeah, you're right. Um, so, Heather, basically you're just like way more self-aware than, yeah. <laughs> than we were when we were younger. I guess this is the lesson there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's, uh, I'm just going to sort of outline the plot a little bit for people that may not have seen the Slumber Party Massacre. Uh, so it is uh, set in Venice, California, in Los Angeles. So uh, Trish, she's an 18-year-old high school senior. Her parents are going away, so naturally she is going to throw a little slumber party with her girlfriends while they are gone. Uh, the very nice and cool neighbor, Mr. David Content. I don't know why I laugh so hard every time he showed up, but I did. Um, is sort of checking in on Trish and her friends to make sure they're okay. Uh, and then uh, what happens is there is an escaped mass murderer uh, and this is one of the parts that I really enjoyed about the film because this is sort of in line with what was happening at the time in Slashers, right? There's all this news uh, on the radio about this escape mass murderer, but nobody seems to really be paying that much attention to it. They're kind of turning off the radio when the news comes on. They're a little bit unbothered by the fact that there is a murderer running around the town uh, on the loose and prepared to kill to kill other people while he's out there um but anyway there's a new girl at school valerie oh valerie totally in love with valerie uh and uh trish invites valerie to come to the party but she declines because mean girl i think it's kim right kim's the mean girl mean girl kim is sort of trash talking her because uh, she's jealous obviously and um and so, but Valerie actually just lives like a next door, which is kind of interesting. So, uh, the party gets going, you know, the girls come over, the party gets going, they smoke some weed, they drink some booze, the neighbor comes to check on them, everything's cool. And then of course, at some point, the killer shows up and starts picking off everybody one by one. 
uh, including the two very annoying bros who show up uh, and spy on the girls while they're changing clothes. Typical high school teen stuff. Uh, the film's from 1982, so it's kind of like shrug. Sorry if you haven't seen it. We're probably going to do some spoilers, but I'm not going to give you the whole thing about everything that happens in this movie. Um, so one thing that I noticed right away this time that I completely spaced last time was that introduction to Valerie um, after the after the playing basketball. Oh, and the gym teacher. Let, let us not forget the gym teacher who... Uh, I also had to laugh at because she is, you know, the gym teacher like lives alone with her cat <laughs> and is obviously like, you know, kind of the stereotypical gym teacher. They don't outright say that she's a lesbian, but I feel like it is heavily implied. Oh, the they writing. basically say it. They basically <laughs> say it because like her, yeah. when she goes, when the gym teacher goes back to her house, there's like a ha a woman, handy woman there, like building bookshelves for her and and putting the peephole in the door, right? And so, I mean, wait, can I just interrupt and say, no, this is Pam. Pam <laughs> is there. She's like coded lesbian butch. She's using the same weapon as the driller killer at she putting is. in a peephole. And then she says, I'll see you next Tuesday, basically, for your bookshelves. <laughs> oh, God. So anyway, so there's that that piece but what i really noticed this time is when they're in the showers afterwards at, at the high school which mm -hmm. by the way what high school has separate shower stalls for girls i i didn't have that in my high school we all had to shower around like basically like a pole with like 10 different shower heads <laughs> but anyway uh valerie is really giving trish like the eyes during that shower scene. Like it is intense and Trish is giving it back. And it is like directly after that exchange that Trish like walks right over to Valerie to say hi and introduce herself. Um, so I was like, oh, oh, there's something I definitely did not catch before. I definitely did not catch the Valerie and Trish. Eyeball fucking. Had a moment. Yeah, <laughs> a very intense moment. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's, these little pieces of hints of queerness that I definitely did not read before when I was watching this. Um, outside, of course, of the uh, the fact that, you know, the driller killer <laughs> is like essentially toxic masculinity defined uh, with his giant drill acting as a penis that just kills women. Also, like, I guess the fact that Valerie is, she's new, so she's by default an outsider, right? But she also does seem like she's, she's probably gay. And that is also contributing to her otherness, to her outsideness from this little clique of girls. Um, particularly Kim, who's just like obsessed with the worst men in the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did notice like when Trish is when all the girls are at her house and the boys show up, the really annoying boys show up. Um, Trish is kind of flirting with one. And I felt like that was just her sort of being like, oh, well, I'm around my girlfriends and I have to pretend like I like boys. Um, <laughs> so that, that was interesting. Um, and I also, one of the things that I really liked um, 
the expansion of Valerie's character with her sister, right, Courtney? And, like, mm-hmm. the way that they were interacting and the way she just, like, took care of her, um, even though her sister was being, like, a total brat the whole time and pretending to freak her out and scare her and stealing her, her Playboy magazine, which was so funny. Um, I, uh, I also just, I don't know, I had this just, like, overwhelming feeling of love for this film that its whole focus is on these women. Its whole focus is on these female characters. So you're so used to seeing slashers where there's like a big mix. There's a big group and there's women and men and the men are like the strong ones and the women are just sort of there to have sex with and make out with. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but I just felt like it's really so rare to see a slasher film in particular where there are so many women characters and the focus is entirely on them and the men are really just side characters. Even the killer is just like an aside. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not given like a full um, picture. So I just really love that. I don't know how, I mean, I'm assuming you guys felt the same way, but... Um, Heather, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I love this film. I think I will always love this film and probably love it a tiny bit more with each watching. I agree with, I think, everything you said. Um, the only things I'm trying to think of things that I wanted to call out. Uh, the lesbian coding throughout. So this is a complicated film because you have kind of three. You have Rita Mae Brown, the lesbian feminist who wrote this as an actual satire. You have uh, Amy Holden Jones, the straight woman who directed it, and then you have Roger Corman as the producer of all of it. And everyone has their, like, like each of those three individuals, their touch is felt in this film. So the tone is kind of interesting because it kind of shifts a lot. So you laugh and then you feel, you connect and you feel for these uh, young women. And then you also, I mean, I genuinely get upset as they die one by one. So I'm like, I don't want any of the main women to die. All the dudes can die, but I don't want any of the main women to die. So there's little things. Like when they're up in, let's see, it's when um, Kim and Trish are in Trish's room. And there's like little moments where on Trish's bedside table is a copy of Ruby Fruit Jungle, a lesbian canon book, Mm -hmm. right? So, mm mm-hmm. And this is like a weird kind of extra textual beast, like piece of knowledge. But do you notice how sports are everywhere throughout this film? And though it's the you know young women who own the sports, like they talk yeah. about basketball, yeah. they talk about football, they talk about baseball. They talk, there's tennis stuff. Um, I think because uh, Rita Mae Brown got together and was partnered with Martina Navratilova um. in '79. And this movie came out in 82, and I just feel like there was, like, this kind of, I don't know, I imagine it being pillow talk (laughs) as they were doing it. Uh, And I also think it's interesting that the two dudes, the, uh, fuck, what are their names? Um, Jeff and Neil. Yeah, who cares what their names are? Yeah, totally. Actually, you're right. Who cares? But Jeff and Neil, those two, I think it's also interesting that the young women constantly overpower physically the young men in the film. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like... This movie, and like you said, the whole thing is really just about, uh, you know, Russ Thorne. I don't think, you know, his penetrative 
name as any mistake. Yes. Rust, you know, Russ Thorne inserting unwanted male sexuality into this lesbian coded space is the, I mean, it's the whole point of the whole film, I think. Don't, and I believe the two boys even say as they're watching the women play basketball, which gross, but whatever. Uh, they even say like that they're not good at sports, right? At some point, I think I remember them saying that like specifically. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. And then it was like, was it? Um, I think it's is it Diane who? Yeah, Diane who throws her dude on his back and basically says, "You better learn to fall better, or you'll get hurt." Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. She totally flips him like all the way over her shoulder, and he's yeah. like, "Ah, my back." <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, mwah, mwah. Multiple chef kisses. <laughs> Adrian, what um, what other things did you notice like uh, this time that you didn't notice last time? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, a lot has been said, but I think that what is for me what stands out about it because I would push back a little. I mean, yes, there are plenty of horror slashers where the women are just there to be, you know, fodder and have sex with. But I would say, you know, a lot of people will probably react to you and be like, no, think of all the great women in slashers, uh, Laurie Strode, like you're, you're, we're, we're going to get that reaction. And so, okay, sure. Yeah, let's acknowledge that. But what is so different about Slumber Party Massacre is that it's not about the like, the, the like subtext isn't discovering your inner power because of some, you know, external force, they already know they're powerful, you know, they just like, they don't have to have this kind of like, um, you know, evil male energy, help them discover that, you know, they're not hiding in the closet, poking out, you know, um, eyes with, with coat hangers. Although, I mean, way to go Lori badass, but you know, it's like, they're just coming running out with a giant machete. It's like, it has the same yes. energy as Jason. And you're like, hell yes. Like, I want to see that taken down with his creepy drill that he uses to slash as often as he does to stab, which I find funny. I'm like, that's an odd way to use that drill. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, whatever. So, oh, yeah, especially. Well, yeah. And especially in two, which we'll get to. But um, yeah, I guess what I would say is I'm not trying to say, of course, that there haven't been that there weren't any other sure. strong women. Uh, what I'm trying to say is there are so there are a lot of different women in this movie and the camera is on the women at almost at all times Mm -hmm. you know even when the men are looking they're looking at the women there are very few moments where it's just about the men or just about the killer and then the other important piece of that is that when you think of like you know Lori or when you think of Alice or Ginny from Friday the 13th the and this is a problem that has been talked about by several different amazing people that I, that love horror that I call friends but one of the problems <laughs> is is that everybody worships the killer right those movies are really more about the killer yeah. those movies are more about Jason they're more about Michael Myers they're more about Freddy than they have ever been about the women um, to a lot of people, I'm not saying like to us, to the three of us, we're probably very much into like the women, you know, but I, I think like in this movie, like they, um, did such a good job of there's this killer and he's scary and he's gross and, um, and he definitely represents, you know, toxic masculinity and that for sure comes through 
when he's confronting Trish and he's saying like, I love you, baby, you know, let me give it to you. I know you want it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, he didn't become the, the, the driller killer, at least in this movie, didn't become like this mythical per- person, this mythical killer that like goes on sequel after sequel and becomes somebody that gets cosplayed and somebody that gets memed and somebody that gets quoted, you know? And so I, like, I feel like that that is part of the real power of this film lies in that, that yeah. the driller killer is not the focus of this thing. Um, and yes, Valerie, holy shit, Valerie. Like she is, you know, she runs over there and she's scared, but she is looking for weapons. And I love this moment where she finds this like uh, saw and then like, is like, this is great. And then she like runs up the stairs with it from the basement and realizes it's plugged in and it's going to be a problem because (laughs) she can't keep it plugged in and kill somebody. But so she she finds a machete are you kidding me and she just like (laughs) runs out there with this machete um and not only that but she cuts his drill in half with it which i was just like fuck yes that Mm -hmm. is amazing because she chops his drill in half and he's just looking at it like "Ah, ah," you know um so anyway Yes, of course. Of course, I acknowledge that there are other there are other strong women. It's just like seeing so many women. Yeah. Um, even though they do die and they do, you know, get picked off, I I still feel like most of them sort of made smart decisions, you know, and they weren't like, um, I don't know, totally they doing exactly stupid stuff. Of course, there's you know like. When, when Valerie keeps going out to check the trash cans, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, have you not been listening to the radio? There is a murderer on the loose. <laughs> yeah, but, but you she, know. She's been busy dealing with her psycho sister. Her sister Courtney is a straight up psycho. Like, we just have to acknowledge that. I love her, actually. I love how annoying she is. I mean, she's not really annoying to me, but I think that's what she's you know, supposed to function as. But she, like, jumps out with her little knife. And Valerie's like, what the hell are you doing? And she's like, oh, it wouldn't stab you. It's pretty dull. Or like, it, it couldn't kill you. I'm like, this girl's a yeah, Which is such a great moment. I know. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's still a knife. I mean, yeah. it's you know, like, come yeah. on. Yeah, I think, what, I, I think what we're all attracted to in the sense is that it's in a, I mean, these are taut films. This is what, 77 minutes of, mm-hmm. I feel like almost pure. I mean, the moment that that title comes up, I'm like, there's just there's no fluff. The only fluff you know would be maybe the gratuitous nudity, nudity, but you know that that was necessary for Corman. <laughs> so right. it's one of those things where it's so good and how they built up was we we have we have Trish, we have Diane, we have Jackie, Val, Kim, and Courtney. How they built up all of these like young women characters, and you feel like you have a sense of who each of them actually is as an individual is really impressive. And that sister dynamic is pretty spot on as someone who has younger siblings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think you're, that's exactly it. Like you get to know each one of them, not, you know, obviously not in totally in depth because yeah, it's a short movie, but it's like, yeah, you, you feel like you know who everyone is. You know Kim is the snob. You know she has bad taste in men. You know, like, y- you know that uh, that Jackie's... Wait, wait, 
Diane, I think Diane's the snob because remember when she's like, Diane, you're such a snob. And she's like, only the best people are. Oh, yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. It is Diane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you you know, you feel like and like Jackie's sort of like the party girl uh, who likes to eat pizza because hello. Yes, of yes. course. <laughs> who cares that the pizza guy's dead? That pizza is still edible. Let's uh, yeah. Like that moment this time in 2020, I, I mean, I, I, I've actually, I, I have love for each one of them for different reasons, but the moment when Jackie is just like, and you know, Kim is like, he's dead. All right. So cold. She's like, is the pizza? I'm like, bitch. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. And then she takes it like out of the box off of his dead body and just eats it. I'm like, this is exactly what I needed in this moment of like October, 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I just feel like, I don't know, it, it's just like such a, a joy. And I also like the way that it's like Valerie and Trish sort of work together at the end to take down the driller killer. Um, and it's sort of like, uh, and also I have a, a huge soft spot in, in my heart for horror films that end on a very traumatic note, meaning that like Mm -hmm. Valerie and Trish did not skip off into the sunset together, you know, after this happened, like all of their, (laughs) their friends are dead. They've witnessed this, these horrible murders and they've just killed somebody, which they've never done before. And so they're, you know, they're traumatized. They're screaming, they're panting heavily. They're just like, Oh my gosh. You know, so yeah. I don't know. I just really enjoyed it in a way that I I didn't the first time, and so I'm glad that I um, gave it a second chance. I'm glad that we decided to talk about it. Yeah, it's a good yeah, one. no, absolutely. And uh, this is like another weird, just extra textural piece. Uh, the Amy's assistant director, I believe, was Carol Frank. And Carol Frank went on to go write and direct Sorority House Massacre. So, one, one, one. Yeah. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, which we will have to do uh, on a future podcast. And that is also, I believe, one that I have not seen. Oh, yes. I'm so excited mm-hmm. for that. <laughs> I get very excited for that, which is a perfect segue into Slumber Party Massacre too, because I know you ha- hadn't seen it. And that was also a very exciting moment yesterday because <laughs> I was like, oh my God, she gets to watch this for the first time in her entire life. Yeah. Like, that was yeah. such a special moment. Oh, 
If you go, don't go all the way. God, anybody got any tranks? I did, yes. Uh, I watched it for the first time last night. I purposely did not read much about it. So kind of the only thing that I knew is what the driller killer looked like in this one because of course when uh when that movie hit shutter last year as adrian mentioned like it was all over the place like you couldn't avoid it like everybody on twitter was using the gifs and um you know everybody's talking about this insane driller killer so i purposely avoided reading anything more about it so i had no idea that it would be a supernatural horror film um so let me just talk a little bit about Slumber Party Massacre 2 plot, which is a 1987 film directed by Deborah Brock and written by Deborah Brock and again produced by Roger Corman. Uh, so this one focuses on Courtney, the little sister of Valerie from the first film, and she is played by Crystal Bernard, who I don't know, like, who's listening to this podcast, but, like, Wings was a big deal on television uh when i was younger and so like i know her from wings so the whole time i was like oh my god it's helen from wings this is crazy um so anyway courtney uh who's you know one of the survivors from the first film is now a senior in high school she's getting ready to celebrate her 17th birthday she has a crush on hottie matt uh at, from her high school and she's in a band with her friends amy sheila and sally um and they decide to spend the weekend at, is I think it's Sheila's dad, right? Who mm -hmm. owns the condo. They decide to go to this condo in the desert. And it's sort of like, um, I think it's funny that they call it a condo because to me it just looks like a housing development, but cool, cool, whatever. <laughs> um, it's this sort of, you know, in development little uh, suburban uh set up and so they're the only ones there because it's still being built and it's a brand new condo so they head out there for the weekend of course boys are invited because boys are always invited uh so courtney of course is traumatized from the events of the first movie and her sister valerie is in the insane asylum and so she has these very vivid nightmares about the driller killer only in her nightmares <laughs> the driller killer has sort of evolved into this Elvisy kind of leather jacket wearing guitar player whose drill is actually attached to his guitar. Um, and he's very quippy and he sings songs and he's constantly trying to make out with her and it's like a whole thing. So as they go to this condo, uh, Courtney starts dreaming more and hallucinating more. And as it turns out, the driller killer sort of comes alive out of her mind and starts picking off the kids one by one. So this film is totally insane. And I was <laughs> not really prepared. I should have been prepared just, just from the photos of the driller killer and his drill guitar. But I really was not prepared for how insane it was and how insane it got um and the musical parts i just don't even know i mean the band parts are one thing because it's like this is this movie is so 80s that it almost hurts like it is legit 80s girl band uh the the costumes the outfits the hair like 
everything is just so 80s. <laughs> and, um, and of course, because it's like 87, it's like just right in that sweet spot of everything being so crazy, but somehow making sense at that time. But I still, <laughs> you know, I still was just not prepared for this. The, the band scenes, and then not just the band scenes, but like the driller killer singing like an entire song as he's getting ready to murder people. I don't even know what to say about this. Not to mention the fact that the only time that Courtney hallucinates this driller killer is when she's getting ready to have sex. And so she's, you know, she's never had sex before. And so anytime she sort of gets hot and bothered, this is when the driller killer makes his appearance. Now, I've read, I read some things about how some people think that this is a, a manifestation of Courtney, that she is either a lesbian or a bisexual and so she is having anxiety about going all the way with a man for the first time because maybe it's not what she really wants i did not find in this film as much obvious coding about her being queer as i thought there might be but i am interested to hear what you two ladies think about that I went first last, Adrian, so you oh, should go first. Sure. I mean, I yeah, I agree. I, I don't see it, it as... That's kind of what I was saying to Heather before we started, is like, objectively for me, the first film is a better film in terms of just like this. It's just so ballsy and beautiful and queer. And this one feels not like that to me. I mean, you can, you can interpret it, but it doesn't feel as intentional to me. Um, but it is batshit crazy. And ultimately, for me, there, I, there's no answer to what happened, which that is great. I mean, there's a, there's an answer, kind of. Yeah. But I mean, they, yeah, they, they put a button on the end, but it doesn't mean anything. Who knows what it like happened? And I really like that. But for me, it's more about the moments. But uh, um, to answer the question of like queer coding, eh, I don't see it as much in this. I mean, maybe it's just watching them one after the other and the other being so brilliant in mm -hmm. that regard. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. It's like, you can tell Rita Mae Brown did not write this one. And yeah. it mean, I, I agree with everything with both of you said, because it is my favorite Nagel slasher. It is. It's just literally like oh, yeah, a straight up. time capsule days. I do. The only queer thing in it is me watching it being like, why the fuck didn't I go to slumber parties? <laughs> uh, do they do that? Does that does that happen? Does someone get naked and there's feathers all over everyone? You know, I um, no, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I'm like I turned to I turned to Ami and I was like, wait, did did, did, did this happen? Did I just miss out? Because we moved a lot and I was just like a weird kid anyway, and I just was not a slumber party kid, and I'm just like. Because I really missed out. She's like, no, nah, bitch, this did not happen at any of the slumber parties. She's like, and I went to a lot of slumber parties, so I'm glad to hear that you are confirming Ami's um, take on it. It definitely did not happen at any of the ones I attended. First one, you know, I feel like that kind of stuff happened. It's, it's very much meant to be like, this is what men think that women sit around and do, right? That they change in front of each other and... They're just like enjoying being together. Uh, in this one, it definitely could be read as like, this is what a man thinks that women do at slumber parties. So we're just gonna make it happen. This one, 
<laughs> took it to such an insane level with like everybody doing their solo dance <laughs> and i don't remember which girl it's the the girl with the long blonde hair that has like the pimple later yeah. she mm -hmm. is such a bad dancer that it was like <laughs> i was just like i don't i think it was her that was a bad dancer one of the blonde girls is just like terrible at dancing and i was like oh you poor soul you know because it's like everybody else is up there doing like their sexy little moves and um You've got uh, Sheila with her red hair, you know. By the way, I was like, the whole time I was watching, I was like, God, that woman who plays Sheila looks so familiar. Mm -hmm. And do you know where I recognized her from? What? Psycho 3. <gasps> and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so anyway, I, I just like, she was definitely like the best dancer, but she was doing like this insane, like gyrating on the lamp, you know, as if it was a stripper pole. And then, yeah, the feathers get ripped open and there's champagne flowing everywhere and, this, that definitely felt more like, um, and even the show the boys watching, right? But that definitely felt more to me like, well, this is what the men who are watching this film are going to want to see. And this is what they expect. You know, this is what they think happens at it, slumber parties. To me, that, that yeah, that, that never happened at slumber parties for me either. Maybe when I was getting older in just one-on-one -on -one slumber parties, but that would be like, oh my God, we're making out and we have no context for understanding that. <laughs> like how this happened and now I don't know who I am anymore and I have to go home um that's that's, a, that's ouch yeah we can we can that's a whole other podcast that we can start but yeah, um but yeah. but I will say what I love two things about this the, that scene is honestly people running around naked and pouring champagne over each other it seems more like um cabin weekends that I've had with my like slightly younger uh gaggle of gays they love to get naked in front of each other. And that's funny. When I watch those kinds of sleepover like scenes now, I'm like, oh my God, this is like this is like Labor Day weekend with Chris and Mike. And <laughs> um, Are there but, feathers? Uh, not in recent, not, I mean, I haven't seen anyone in like a year at this point, but um, yeah, you never know. You never know, especially with Mike. He's always got some sort of crafty something. Um, <laughs> But what's cool to me also in that scene is the, the camera gets so weird and what they're doing is so weird. Like, and it happens over and over again in the movie where they just will like shoot a character dead on kind of Wes Anderson style while they dance, which is strange. <laughs> yes. yes. And then and then it will like cut and now we're all doing a, like a line dance, but we're looking somewhere <laughs> oh, yeah. and the camera's looking at us from this other angle. And it's just like, that's very dreamlike even from the top. And mm -hmm. I love it. So, yeah, I agree. And also, like, it was weird to me that, like, um, the main star of the thing, you know, Courtney doesn't ever get naked. And, like, you know, she doesn't ever take off her top. She, um, she doesn't prance around in her underwear. Like, the, the most unclothed you ever see her is in her bikini, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's interesting in that... I, I, you know, maybe Crystal Bernard made that choice, although that seems very unrealistic for that time for an actress to have the power to say, I'm not doing that, you know, yeah. but it is um, an interesting thing to think about that she's the only one who sort of doesn't get subjected to that, uh, being naked and taking off her top and dancing sexily, right? She, her dance is just sort of like standard 80s, like bopping around. Um, yeah. But yeah, that scene, like, where all of them are in a row doing this weird choreographed, badly choreographed dance. I don't know. Who would do that? That's, 
You know, the slumber strange. parties I went to, we would basically like split a Totino's pizza in half and eat like an entire bag of chips and two pints of ice cream. Like that was our activity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. I'd like listening to music really loud. I don't know. Looking at Teen Beat. I don't remember any of this situation happening. I do like that Kimberly MacArthur, who's Amy, she doesn't get naked, but she's the one who was a Playboy playmate. And I'm like, hell yeah, girl, like, don't, you don't have to take off your clothes for everything. Like, you can do it when you want. And it's not for this movie. Yeah, it's kind of amazing if maybe, like, if Corman didn't have that much influence on it or something, because that feels like something that he would have been demanding for, you know, in some way. Yeah, but which to me makes it seem like she actually contractually made it sure before she signed on that she wouldn't do it. Yeah. So uh, so going back to Adrian's point, like I think that was like a really active decision and like, yeah, good for her. Yeah. Um. There's just so much about this movie. There's that chicken. I love the chicken. A like, possessed oh raw chicken. Yes. I know. <laughs> the chicken, the hand in the hamburger. I was like... <laughs> they slipped they slip that right in there like they're having the barbecue um first of all i love that the, it's like the boys made lunch and i'm like really okay um but they make this lunch of like hamburgers and french fries and uh and it's weird because they're like, sitting at the table and they show the hamburger with like a hand in it like a human hand mm-hmm they show it from afar, and I was like, what is wrong with that hamburger? <laughs> and then, you know, Courtney picks it up, and I'm like, oh, that's a that's a hand. That's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that they're have, they weren't just having her hallucinate the driller killer. She's also hallucinating these different things that are, like, maybe warning signs or just, like, things that are sort of, like, making you question her sanity, right? Which... Mm-hmm. is also interesting in that the ending of this film, you could read it at the very end of the film, you could read it as Courtney had been hallucinating everything this whole time. Right. And maybe she was even just in the asylum the whole time, you know? Yeah, yeah. I reject that. I reject that the way I rejected that Buffy episode. I reject it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Buffy episode. I still reject it, though, because it's yeah. like, you know... Um, we will skip the Buffy conversation because that can go on forever. But yeah. going just to this one, this film is about trauma at its base. Mm-hmm. And I would much rather my trauma survivor be out in the world conquering things and surviving again than having been locked up the entire time with her sister in a mental hospital. Yeah. Although, but that's that's an interesting to think about because she she isn't really conquering anything. Like the... You know what I mean? Particularly because she ends up there. Whether or not she started there or was there the whole time, she doesn't have a happy ending. You know, she doesn't have, she doesn't vanquish necessarily the killer. So, Well, I think this is where my, like, you know, my queer gaze helps me, maybe, because I spent my entire life rewriting everything. So I'm going to tell you how I think this movie ends. She gets yes. a rest She gets a rest for a few days, and then she's out, and she won. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just like, you know, that, that's like literally, in my head, I'm like, what are you talking about? She totally won. She's going to go get a rest, she's going to get some meds, she's going to sleep, and it's all going to be fine. <laughs> Until got- Summer Park Ambassador 3. <laughs> no, yeah. Kidding. Right. So, yeah, I just wonder about the decision in this one. Not that it isn't 
great because it's the whole the whole package is this very kitschy you know i absolutely understand why this has become like a cult phenomenon i mean is there's no way it couldn't have ended up that way just given the way the driller killer is given the way the the guy who plays him hams him up uh, his outfit his weapon the costumes you know costumes the clothing that they're wearing everything everything is like very kitschy very over the top so i totally get it but i just wonder like why deborah brock decided like instead of having a real person be the killer i'm gonna have it be this <laughs> supernatural sort of dream you know sort of freddy krueger-esque person who like emerges out of nowhere and then is able to like hop out of courtney's consciousness and like kill people I just wonder like why that decision was made. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could be as simple as like, Hey, you know, this nightmare on Elm street thing is really working for people. I mean, that's maybe a little cynical. Who knows? No, I mean, it could be cause like 87. So that's like when sort of, you know, uh, Freddie hit the sort of MTV generation of nightmare films. So it does kind of make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it was wild, uh, and I'm glad that I finally watched it. Uh, I watched it alone, which I think is actually fine, because it just gave me time to sort of really absorb it without any kind of interruption. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, and also I think I read something about one of the girls, I think it's, I think it's actually read, Juliet Cummins, who played Sheila, I think she was actually in a band and actually did release some of those tracks as like <laughs> legit tracks. Well, we, uh, Atanas Illich definitely released an entire album, but we can, we don't have to talk about him yet, but we do have to talk about him. <laughs> now let's talk about him. What do you know about this guy who played the driller killer? Cause I don't know anything about him. So I, I'm not sure if this was his first or last. It, he was not like a hugely like, focused actor in terms of his life but he's like oh god my memory's gonna like do that thing where I can't remember but he comes from an incredibly wealthy family business family and so he like went off and did these various little artsy things quote-unquote little artsy things like be star in movies and he also has a um he did an album and I believe there's a cat. He's holding a cat on the back of the cover. Like, he just is a very interesting person. I don't know where he really came from. He's from Detroit, I think. And he passed away in 1999. Um, that I know. I believe, yeah, his, there it is. My mind is back. His family owned the Detroit Red Wings. They had, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So he's just, like, comes from this crazy family. And I don't know how he ends up in a Corman film. So hopefully someday someone can tell me that. But yeah, look up his album. All right. And your mind will be blown. I, yeah. The, I mean, it was just like, I don't know. This is definitely one of those films that you just have to see to believe. Like there, there's no amount of us describing it that is gonna just download how much of an experience watching this movie is and like a completely different experience than watching the first film the first mm -hmm. film is its own whole thing and it's brilliant and i love it and this one is its whole own other thing 
Yep. And I don't want to say it's brilliant because I feel like the the reason that it is become such a cult classic is just kind of an accident. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. I don't think, I don't really know how this was received when it came out, but I feel like it probably was not received well. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, at that time people didn't recognize this sort of, I mean, it, at that time, it wouldn't have seemed kitschy or campy. It would have just been like, oh, this movie's kind of dumb. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. Because because all those other elements are like stuff that was just like real life in 1987. You know, like you might have been in a, in a band with your girlfriends and you definitely wore clothes like that. And maybe you obsessed about your skin, you know, so it's just like, um, mm -hmm. yeah, that speaking of the skin thing, like that zit thing is just like, I, I don't amazing is that what you're trying to say it's amazing <laughs> it's like amazing but it's also just like such a weird thing to include i oh yes 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 the whole thing i mean like what is not weird in this film yeah, yeah. everything about it is weird at the end when they're crawling around in like the house that's not constructed oh and <laughs> speaking adrian of what you brought up earlier adrian like mm -hmm. the fact that He's not just drilling people, but this killer, this driller killer in particular, really loves to slash with that drill. That is like his main move. He just likes slashing with that drill. Yeah. Um, which is also weird. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really, but for me, it's that's really visceral though, because I just like imagine the like whirling drill bit ripping across skin and like the damage that would do is actually mm -hmm. really awful. Um, I mean, maybe not as awful as getting impaled straight through but you know it's just still bleh, um i like that also i have to just small shout out we this is about uh women directed films but i will also say joel hoffman as tj i i just i he's so annoying and i love it and i just think <laughs> his performance is really lovely with his like horrible little laugh and like his cigarettes and you know he just smells terrible and like I don't know he embodies it really well and so good job Joel he does because I fucking hate him yeah, yeah. exactly he's exactly yeah 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 isn't that good. there's like that one scene where he like gets on top of Sheila like he scares her and then jumps on top of her and I feel like he actually hurt her mm. because he's like got his knee on her arm and she's like ow ow and I'm like oh my god he's actually like legit on top of her like yeah. her. will you be watching it again uh yeah i mean i think like uh well i would love to i would love to introduce it to to somebody else who hadn't seen it and sort of like see it again through the eyes of somebody seeing it for the first time um but it definitely feels like more you know like a definite like sort of party movie like something that you would want to watch with a lot of friends and maybe you're a little high or a little drunk or a little altered in some way it seems like it would be like really fun to watch it that way um i still had fun watching it even though i wasn't um that way and it, except for the fact that i had taken a lot of painkillers because i'm an old lady who hurts my back all the time and so like <laughs> i just was like in bed like nursing a hurt back and like oh so watch this movie for the podcast um but yeah it was it was crazy i'm, I'm glad i finally saw it so, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, that's so. exciting. When one of you, which I forget which one of you wrote and said something about uh, Andrew Dice Clay stealing oh. his shtick. 
I did that. Yeah. I mean, it just seems really evident to me, although I suppose I should probably look about. Yeah. I'm like, which, which one came first? Yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty sure Dice didn't like, I mean, he was in Pretty in Pink. Um, he had like a little role in Pretty in Pink, but he wasn't doing that shtick then. Yeah. He wasn't doing that shtick. He was just more bouncer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like he became popular with that shtick more in the, I don't like, know, Casual Sex came out in 88. Um, well, this is 87. Yeah, I feel like, though, yeah, I feel like he really started doing that kind of shtick later in the 80s and early 90s. Well, I guess all of this could be just like a broader comment about just thinking, of, speaking to the context which these films were made in the sense that second wave... You know, the second wave of the women's movement really took hold in the 70s and then was met with an incredible backlash in you know, Reagan mm-hmm. conservatism mm-hmm. of the 1980s. So mm-hmm. maybe the driller killer and Andrew Dice Clay just came out of the same yeah. conservative <laughs> concoction of 80s bullshit. That looks so great, though. <laughs> it's true. And I mean, also just like, um, that's why I think, though, that... Like the first movie is so important because it's it was created in a sea of these slasher movies that were very misogynistic and were aimed at teenage boys and were really by and large about, you know, tits and ass and about mm-hmm. teenagers getting murdered for having sex and just sort of like it's so it's really interesting to see that through a female gaze and through the lens and even like even though we acknowledge that like roger corman produced both these films and as such demanded a certain amount of titillation i do feel like even the the naked scenes in the first movie there you can still tell they're filmed from a from a female gaze like yeah mm-hmm. there there's a lot of lingering on the back and sort of the curves you know and the butt Yes, there's Mm -hmm. some tits. Of course there is. But I feel like that is also like in the context of these boys watching. And so it it does make sense to me that it's like uh, Amy would have filmed it that way, knowing like, okay, well, here's the teenage boys in the audience. These two represent this audience and this is what they're expecting to see and this is what they're going to see. But I do feel like a lot of the nudity was like way more respectfully done than you normally see when it's when it's the male gaze yeah especially in the first one it literally just feels like it's built into like you do get up and you change into your clothes and you get naked in that process and it didn't feel titillating if you know what i mean right Mm -hmm. yeah exactly like in this second one it definitely feels more gratuitous it definitely the the women are definitely acting in a way that they think men are gonna want to see do you know like i guess that's part of what i would say too is that while my slumber parties may not have involved like a lot of sexy dances and stuff, of course, of course we got up and danced. But when you're doing that amongst other women, you're doing it for yourself. It's like, it just looks like a completely different thing than Mm -hmm. if you're doing it, knowing that a man is watching and trying to like rev them up, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. I think it's more of a joyous celebration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, 
rad at some point. I had to say rad, of course. Um, <laughs> at some point, we will get to the third one, but I think we're just going to take a little pause before we do that because we know that the third one is not – it's neither good or so bad that it's good. And so we're going to just uh, – we're just going to table that. <laughs> I've never seen that one, though, so I'm, I'm excited to fill in the blind spot. Uh-oh, did Heather just drop? I totally did. And you know what? In my head, I was thinking, good job, Heather. You didn't drop anything. <laughs> I thought you just fell over because I haven't seen Slumber Party Massacre. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <sighs> my hands are back on my, like, on my knees. I will not drop anything. <laughs> hey, you know, it's natural. It gives the, a better vibe, right? Yeah. We're just yeah. Really? You want to know what it was? Is I was actually thinking about Deborah Hill, and I just kind of got verklempt and dropped my like water mug. Oh. <laughs> I was, well, was, I was really what I was doing. I was thinking like about some of the things that I just listened to you both say, and I was like, really, there was no focus on the women makers because why would they highlight women makers? Right. And, and I was thinking about how I didn't really know Deborah Hill's role in some of like my beloved films of my youth mm -hmm. until I was actually nearly an adult and mm -hmm. how fucked that is. Yeah. That's all. That's all. That's a little, and, and I dropped my water mug because of that. Cause I got yeah. angry. Patriarchy. Let's just say it again. Fuck the patriarchy. Fuck the patriarchy. Fuck them. Yeah. Uh, and I do want to add this to, to the fuck the patriarchy message. And speaking of Deborah Hill, let's also talk about Daria Nicolodi, who had mm. a huge part yes. in a lot of Dario Argento films and is rarely acknowledged. But yes. what I do want to say is absolutely fuck the patriarchy. That doesn't mean that we all, all three of us, don't love films by men. It doesn't mean that. I love John Carpenter. You know, I, I love John Carpenter. And I can still love John Carpenter films. And yet say fuck the patriarchy <laughs> those two yeah. things can exist at the same time yeah so don't come at me being like oh y'all are just man haters who don't like any horror directed by men because that's not true we did it's not true but you can come at me anyway but that's not true <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean I yeah like we like we mentioned in the first episode come at us but just be prepared to be put on blast when you do come at us <laughs> I, have a, I have a machete i have a machete and i know how to use it now <laughs> I think exactly. that's the perfect place to end. Adrienne has a machete and she knows how to use it. So <laughs> thank you for joining us for episode two of the Splattercast. And we will see you again in a future episode. It's Amy again. Thanks so much for listening to the Splattercast. We really appreciate it. If you have any women-directed horror films you'd like to hear us talk about, please shoot us an email at ilovesplatterblog at gmail.com or hit us up on the socials at ilovesplatter. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. We would love it. We would love to hear what you think about us. Tune in next time for Adrian and I talking about Jennifer's Body, directed by Corinne Kusama. And again, thanks for listening. Okay, bye.